Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And this week we have a very special guest in Stephen Moss. So hello, Stephen. Good evening. Stephen Moss, you may recognise, or you, if you could see him, I suppose, <laughs> that's a good start. You've been on, you've been on Spring Watch and a few things out there, haven't you, Stephen? I've done all yeah. sorts of things. I don't, I don't like doing one thing at once. So, I, yeah, I was first producer of Spring Watch and I've written a lot of nature books and uh, I lead bird tours and teach nature writing and generally keep myself out of mischief. Mostly, and occasionally joins me in Essex for little walks around. <laughs> for, hey, for I'm very good on research. You are. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we better start as normal with the podcast news. Uh, at some point I will write a jingle or something to put on there. So we've picked up a few more uh, followers on Facebook and Twitter. So Facebook, we're now up to 323 335 followers and on twitter we've got 212 followers so big shout out and thank you to everyone who's mm. followed us and, and also interacted with us on both our social media accounts and the downloads are going well we've had nearly 600 downloads since the last episode so that's pretty good we're on 4978 downloads so we're getting close to that 5000 there and on spotify as well we're up to 135 followers and 329 unique listeners as well so that's not bad creeping up slowly which is good so thanks everyone again what's everyone been well obviously we've all been fairly much trapped locally if not in our houses so what's everyone been seeing do you want to start vic yeah so actually these are all pretty much from well these are all from yesterday and today so i'm going to start surprisingly with the birds i've seen in my garden what yes you heard that correct neil i said birds so so far, I've actually enjoyed watching blue tits, great tits, robins, starlings, a lot of starlings, house sparrows, wren and blackbirds and also magpies, but they don't tend to come into the garden. So I actually have it's not even really a bird bath it is a plant pot tray, which I fill with water every day. And they're coming down, taking their turns, having a wash and having a drink from that, which is amazing. And then moving on to the far more exciting things of invertebrates. I saw my first male orange tip butterfly today uh, appeared in the garden, had a red-tailed bumblebee, a buff-tailed bumblebee, lots of nursery web spiders, particularly seem to love my strawberry plants, wolf spiders, uh, an awful lot of black ants, dark-edged bee fly, zebra jumping spiders, they're out particularly on the sunny walls, and also a 22-spot ladybird. So that's my sightings from the last two days in my garden. That's pretty good going. But you've managed to get out locally, haven't you, for your exercise walks, Stephen, did I see? That's right. Yeah, I, I, I'm very lucky. I've got a big garden in Somerset and today, it, partly because, you know, the silver lining of this great crisis is that we're actually at home all the time. So really mm. seeing changes with spring, as Vic said, I had my first orange tip a couple of days ago for swallow on Saturday after staring at the skies for days. <laughs> <laughs> And then yesterday on my bike ride round a local moor at the back of our house, which is basically a flat, fieldy area, which doesn't look very prepossessing, but I'm up to 60, no, I'm up to eight, over 80 species there in the last three or four oh, years. And I got wheat here yesterday, which is beautiful, uh -huh. stunning bird on its way from Africa up to maybe Scotland, Scandinavia. And then today I was on my bike ride and I was just thinking this one bird that even though it's really common on the levels, I'll probably never get it here because it's so sedentary, and that's Chetty's Warbler. And oh, as I turned the corner for home, a Chetty's Warbler sang. Nice. Oh, wow. So I stopped, listened, heard it three or four times. It sounded quite low-key, and I think it might have been a young one, perhaps just trying out its song for the first time, you know, born last year. 
Um, but yeah, so no, it's been really special actually. And a missile thrush today in the garden, never had a missile thrush in the garden, had them overhead before, but I think this one's now nesting nearby, so I'll be looking out for that. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've, I've just got a, as I've mentioned, people who've listened to the show for a while know, I've got a tiny little garden um, not too far from Tilbury in Essex, and I've I've been doing all right. I've been looking, you know, supervising the kids in the garden, and I've had my first bee flies in the garden, which is my sign of spring. The classic drone flies and hoverflies. Birds wise, I've had some goldfinches coming in, probably a highlight. But there's also I've, there's almost certainly a pair of blackbirds nesting because uh, they keep coming into the garden and using my pond to bath, and they'll be probably eating the tadpoles soon. Oh, yes, my tadpoles have hatched, which I'm sure Vic has just forgotten to mention and kicking herself now. Um, yes. Mine are actually <laughs> swimming around in the pond, because I actually yep. sit there for about 10 minutes in the afternoon and just watch them swimming around. And my pond is now netted, so the birds can't get in it, hence having a separate bird bath. Oh, my blackbirds need to feed. Um, <laughs> They're not having um, my I'm, tadpoles. I'm trying to attract diving beetles into my gun. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's, there's still the old frog in my pond as well, because every time I go near my pond, basically the top of my pond is just a mass of hatched frog spawn, and it moves when something's just been moved around in the pond like a frog. Um, I've had a rat as well, we'll come back to that later. Peacock butterfly, had a white butterfly getting chased by a sparrow today, loads of sparrows and starlings. I'm trying to think what else I've had, but I think highlight wildlife is for me was uh, before with a lockdown, I did grab a few pictures, and when I was trying to photograph a diving beetle larva, a huge hydra. I say huge. Uh, for those who don't know, Hydra is like a, it's kind of like a freshwater anemone, but microscopic. So centimetre size is a typical large one. This one's about two centimetres with the tentacles. Um, so just think of an upside down jellyfish on a stalk. And I was photographing it and filming it. Um, and as I filmed it, a cyclops, which is a tiny little crustacean, a bit like a tiny shrimp, swam past and got caught in it and wrestled with the tentacles and then swam off. And it was like a miniature version of something from Blue Planet. So that was my wildlife highlight of the week was in my pond man shed <laughs> filming that. But uh, <laughs> still nice to see. That's pretty cool. I've only seen Hydra four times in my life, which is pretty good. Considering that, you know, I'm pond man, I'm always looking in the ponds. It's, uh, they're not the easiest things to see. Well, I, can, I can actually say just listening now. Actually, got a pair of tawny owls calling outside the house, Very which nice. is amazing. Well, you're in Froome, aren't you? In the other side of Somerset from me, but I am. Yeah, yeah. Now we haven't had tawnies this year. We used to have them resident here for years, and a couple of years ago they just seemed to have gone. Um, we've got little owls now. Although I haven't, again, I haven't heard them this spring, but they they tend to call more sort of later in the season in the summer a lot. So I'm hoping we, they're somewhere. We. I didn't really hear them um, last year at all, but they were building uh, some some new houses and they cut down a lot of the trees out the back because we live right on the outskirts of Froome. So we have fields and then a wooded valley behind us. So we're quite lucky in that where we live. But then this year they've been so vocal. I mean, at one point mm-hmm. I had three different pairs calling from different areas around, which was just absolutely amazing. Wow. I, I had what I think was a youngster at the bottom of my garden last year. So even in a, uh, I mean, they get them in the central centre of London, Tawny Owls. If you go to Kensington Gardens, you can get them there. They're, uh, yeah, they're great little things, very adaptable. And apparently, yeah. nothing, it, I mean, you'll probably know this, Stephen. Even towns, they take out songbirds as they sleep. And they've, yeah, they've one study yeah. found. And of course, they're incredibly sedentary. I mean, they're you know that's why I'm upset that I've lost the ones here because I suspect yeah. one's died, maybe the other one's gone off because they they don't you know they rarely travel more than about half a mile from where they're born in their whole lives, so they're not. Wow. Um, although a few years ago I did get one I thought someone like Mike Dildred turned up and was having a, you know 
playing a trick on me because I heard one in the early morning, about 11 o'clock in the morning, about 11 seas, and hooting. I thought, I said, Tony out hooting. And I thought, I must have been wrong. Next morning happened again. I thought no one would come round twice and then not, you know, nah. do, do that. So, And then I read in British Birds that um, this is in the autumn when the teenagers are, are out of the, you know, come out of the nest and they're looking for their own territories. So the adults... Um, who the males will hoot to try to basically throw the teenagers out and they yeah. during the day which i've not come across before i have heard them in the day i heard them at work a couple of times about february march time so when they i guess they're getting a bit maybe i don't know maybe they've seen another adult or something during the daytime or they're just getting a bit confused i don't know <laughs> but they, apparently it's not unheard of them to hoot during the day i have heard I, that as well i've heard them the wooded valley we have behind the house um when i've gone down there um kind of march time for some of the flowers and stuff i've heard them calling during the day as well i wonder if they're calling to the young sometimes well that'd be a different call wouldn't it yeah it's interesting though they're cool birds owls you gotta give owls yeah. credits although my favorite thing fact about owls is when people go oh the wise old owl and you point out that their skull is like 90 percent eyeball so there's no room for a brain <laughs> you're one of the more stupid <laughs> birds aren't they? that's a bit harsh but yeah, yeah. probably true <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic eyesight, not so good thinking skills. So I believe it's time to move on to the news. And this, oh, we have got one bit of follow-up, which is on moles. And this sort of goes with a bit of the news story we've got coming up that people are seeing more moles because there's less people around. Uh, we're seeing more of them apparently on the surface, crawling around on the tops. Yes, that's just one little follow-up from our mole topic. Uh, was that last episode? Episode before last, last wasn't yeah. it? I do wonder if, you know, just people are staying more locally, almost just exploring what they've got locally a lot more. I wonder if people are actually just seeing them more rather than, yeah. you know, than, if that makes yeah. sense. I don't, I don't think they'd be any more active. I mean, there's about 30 million moles in Britain. And, uh, yeah. You know, they're very common species that no one ever sees. So, yeah, I think you're right, Vic. You know, if they're, people are spending more time in the same place, they're perhaps stopping and having a quick look because they're not in such a rush, you know, it's, Certainly yeah. bird songs, you know, in, particularly in cities, friends of mine in cities are remarking on the bird song who aren't very interested in birds and suddenly they are. Yeah. It's interesting. Have you seen the amount of um, everyone spotting the white-tailed eagles? Because it's obviously a time of year they're dispersing more and there's the Isle of Wight ones we've mentioned before on this podcast a couple of times, I think. People have been seeing them. Kent have had a load. There, there was yeah, It's funny on Twitter, you can follow it, can't you? Yeah, well, two days ago, one, it was, it was shown yesterday, they showed the map on Twitter and yeah. it flew not quite over my house, yeah. but pretty damn close, probably two miles away. It flew west from Wells, and we're sort of just north of west. And looking at the map, it was quite hard to tell, but it looked to me like it had, you know, if I'd looked up, I might have seen it. So, uh, yeah. so, so how, I, how, when was that, Stephen? That was two days ago. Flew up to, uh, basically flew across to the coast, Burnham-on-Sea, and then to double back on itself across the Mendips. That's really interesting, because on the 21st of March... A uh, white-tailed seagull was spotted on the Somerset-Wiltshire border, which is actually right by me, Yeah. Um, around Longley, and actually did, I think they tracked it, it was like over a 100-kilometre circle over Somerset, yeah. and on the same day, one was spotted in Gloucestershire on That's 21st right. of March. I mean, one in Kent, one in Essex, and also, there was one, the first one that went fly about about a year ago, flew all the way across London, Yeah. no one yeah. saw it. Yeah, we covered that in the last podcast, didn't we? Yeah. Or not last, the first podcast, I think, sorry, not the last one, yeah. Yeah, that, and I think that one pretty much went over my house. It flew over rain and marshes, and everyone—that's obviously my local reserve—and everyone was like, "Ah, oh, do we miss it?" And it, but it could have been really high up, so no one would have seen it anyway, even with a three-meter wingspan. But 
Yes, yeah, so the Longleat one is is ten minutes from my house. So, yeah, yeah I kind of managed to miss that one completely. Up, as David Lindo always says. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and as I always say to Howard Vaughan at Rainer Marshes, I'm too busy looking down at the invertebrates and the yeah. frogs and lizards. That's my so. problem. I'm, I'm I'm looking in the ground and the undergrowth. I'm not normally looking up. Yeah. Oh, I do remember. I think it was a some bird of prey. It might have been a marsh hare. It might have been a hen hare or something passing through that was quite good, and I missed it because I was too busy looking at lizards. I think. There's a few of that came out. Uh, there was a lot of stuff on Twitter as well about the scoters. Did you see that, Stephen? Yes. Yeah. They flew, again. They flew over friends of mine in bits of East Somerset. They heard them, and I mean, I, I to be honest, I don't know a common scoters call. It's not that I see them, let alone hear. Um, but people were identifying them by call, and I think you know all sorts of weird things have been flying around. You know. Yeah. From what I've read, common scoters for those that don't know are a sea duck. And they migrate north to breed every year. And apparently this sort of thing happens this sort of time of year. But everyone's got time to stay up and listen for them at night and stuff. So yeah. I've seen all sorts of... Again, you've got planes, haven't you? You've got traffic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Miss them, yeah. People have been having things like little grebes fly over, um, calling, you know. There's a new thing now where you can... Get, uh, there's a setup where you can record all night yeah. on quite a cheap recorder. A microphone uh, and it's really not very expensive and then the trouble is then you have to download it and analyze go scroll through and analyze all because it converts it to sonograms and people mm. have been having the most amazing things fly over their gardens i mean vast numbers of birds that you would never imagine flying over so it's quite tempting to do except i'm not very technical i keep yeah. i keep meaning to try and record we have a starling that comes and i swear it's the same starling and i'm sure it was the same one that was here last year and mimics a buzzard call ah, and yes, yeah, and it, it sits in the hedge and every time i'm sat out in the garden all i'm listening like, i really should record <laughs> that and then i haven't but we just have this one starling and i every time it it starts calling mimicking the buzzard i'm always looking up looking for the buzzard because it's that convincing yeah of course yeah it's, it's amazing it's just like wow i had one that did i heard a green woodpecker and thought oh i've never had one and then i heard a curlew and went old on a minute and looked up to the top of my roof and there's a starling singing away but uh, yeah uh, they're amazing mimics. Well, the minor bird is a starling, isn't it? So yeah, it's not, right. not, not that surprising. We'll move on to the news proper. We've kind of covered one of the stories already there. It was the white-tailed eagles I was going to mention. But I mean, you probably most people have probably seen on the news about the goats going into the Welsh towns. They've, all the mountain goats have moved because <laughs> there's no traffic and no people around. They're going, mm, gardens, these have got nice plants in. And they've moved into the town and started grazing. And there's anecdotal stuff about goals uh, that usually hang around certain areas where there's food dispersing out and i mentioned the rat in my garden people reporting rats have not had rats before because obviously people aren't dropping tons of food outside all the takeaways and it around the warehouses where their lunch is i've got some warehouses near the back of my house and of course no one's going there working and leaving food lying around and i think the rats are moving out and yeah, i've obviously got bird feeders in my garden you guys are too young to remember the foot and mouth crisis but or vaguely, vaguely oh, we're both just about old enough, I think. 2001, uh, but yeah. what happened then was um, I lived in London then, and, and Richmond Park, of course, they closed the park. All right. Um, and at that moment, all the crows and jackdaws left the park ah. because there was no food. And they, I think something like 50 pairs of skylarks raised young that year, whereas normally virtually <laughs> do. Oh, so, right. you know, it's not quite the same as, as this, but there'll be some interesting you know benefits the wildlife i think of this i, I imagine the the lack of dog disturbance in richmond park in foot and mouth would have helped as well absolutely. yeah no you're absolutely right. i was going to mention that you're quite right that was the yeah. other thing that obviously would yeah. 
Gibbons. And ditto now, really, you know. Yeah. Although, except players at Richmond Park have been getting busy. Have they actually shut that now? Yeah, yeah. They shut it now, yeah. It's it's a it's a bit of a trick one, that, isn't it? Shutting the nature reserves. A lot of shutting the nature reserves, I think, is because, well, we might as well move on to the next news story then with that one. <laughs> a lot of the wildlife charities are going to struggle now because they've lost um, income from people cancelling the memberships because they're not working or having their income cut. Visitor centres and cafes are shutting, which are a very important income. Uh, and I've got some quotes. There's Mr. Pibirdi from the Wild and Wetland Trust is saying they've had to furlough three quarters of their 460 stuff. And at the moment, they're very concerned. They're dipping into their cash reserves and they could only survive a few more months unless the government helps them out a bit. And they've suggested, along with the new Wildlife Trust head, that if staff can voluntarily go in and volunteer and go and help with the management and stuff. Um, and they're suggesting that with all these reserves to manage, that if they some of their staff would come back and volunteer, so perhaps the cafe staff can go and volunteer and do other jobs, I guess they're suggesting, then it's not doing their job, if you know what I mean. But they can't do anything. A lot, I mean, a lot A lot of the places have an army of volunteers as well. I mean, I'm I'm on the committee for the Wells Group of Somerset Wildlife Trust, and we're all volunteers. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's the other thing you mentioned about you know, people cancelling memberships. We've had, so we will be coming in to doing our walks now our specialist yeah. walks you know our talks pretty much finish i think our last talks normally at the end of march anyway but we would then run walks and that all the way through the summer and obviously we've had to cancel all of those and it'll be the same for a lot of the regional groups for the wildlife trust as well and you know that is a source of income and that although you know comes to you know the local groups you know that money then does go on to you know yeah. head office for those, those trusts as well so I wonder if they could get away with it take a lot of organisation if um, <laughs> Wild and Wetland stuff, trust, trust staff could volunteer at Wildlife Trust and vice versa. They could get around it that way. Because although you can have volunteers, obviously there's current restrictions. No one can do anything, really. I mean, the staff could arguably carry on. But a lot of the problem with volunteers is you need at least one paid member of staff to organise what's got to happen, don't you, in a lot of places, So, which is going to limit them that way. But yeah, I mean, they just the little charity I work for just wouldn't be able to afford to keep me on without the schools coming in to provide the income mm. obviously all the schools have cancelled so. not on effect of all these things isn't it it's very yeah. well my, my big concern is because oh, it's very easy people some people do seem to make almost a, a hobby out of criticizing the rsb wildlife trust and yeah okay they don't get everything right but you know they're a force for good at the end of the day and if they go or they lose some clout, you can guarantee all the hunting organisations backed by their wealthy backers are going to be quite unaffected by this and they're going to have more clout again and it's it's not going to be good for the wildlife. Not to say all shooting groups are bad and stuff, I shouldn't generalise, but, you know, some of them, these people in these groups, want bird of prey eliminated, so uh, or quite happy to let people do such things. So Yeah, no, I yeah. Think, right, I think a lot of the NGOs are, obviously I'm involved with the RSPB counts, yeah. I know they're looking hard at it, Somerset Wildlife Trust, you know, and hopefully, God willing, it will be, things will be relaxed safely fairly yeah. soon and, you know, we can get back to doing stuff. But yeah, I think we've learned a lot from this now. Yeah. The one upside, a lot of people seem to be paying more attention to wildlife in their garden and nearby now, as we've sort of mentioned and alluded to in the last episode. And hopefully, the long term effect will be people care more about wildlife, but we'll uh, we'll see. I guess. Well, I've yeah. seen a lot, a lot more people kind of asking, you know, mm. what can we do in our own gardens now? And, you know, what, it might not have a big space. And this, so we did talk about, um, in the, I think it was in the last episode, and a lot more people seem interested in, in to see what they could maybe do in, in their little space 
to attract more wildlife in because they're obviously you're having to spend more time there as well at the moment and yeah and it's it's the time of year when it's all kicking off of course i mean i've done a few things for the guardian and observer about this they seem very keen on it today program i was on last saturday before last and i'm on again this saturday because again they want a bit of light relief as well they want something mm. that's a little bit less you know oh, yeah. lentlessly dismal um which yeah. most news is at the moment but you know um i i think you know some good comes out of everything and i think there is a, a, a unexpected silver lining thank goodness it's april and not november um yeah but, you know, I think a lot of people, as you say, a lot of my friends in London are remarking on the bird song, which I haven't really noticed before. And it just and I think, you know, I think lots of good could come out of this. But it, it's always hard to tell. You know, we've we've sort of stopped to think for a while, which hasn't happened for most of us for a very long time. You know, life gets busier and busier. And I think what bird song does in particular is we know it relaxes you, but it also, I think, gets people to think quite hard about the fact that there is a whole world out there that they can't control and is independent of us and yet we interact with it and I think that's what is noticeable from certainly social media on this people noticing yeah, that yeah. yeah and hopefully it's going to um, have an impact on the wildlife trade as well so internationally you know yeah. well, being at this base virus looks like it's been caused by eating wild animals raw and stuff it's uh hopefully it'll the one good side will be that will be banned i mean i read somewhere they've banned it but then other things saying they haven't and it's still going on and there's stories in how shall i put it less than reputable sources saying that the market's opened up again and yeah yeah you know they come back to it's you know that's it's always gonna be a problem where you've got the economic benefits of that exactly the local people you can understand even if we don't condone it you understand why they do it um, their only source of income they've been stuck inside not earning anything for months they, they kind of haven't got a choice it's a it's a bit like um, people moan about people shooting elephants in Africa but if that food that that elephant's trying to eat is your only source of food not, not just income food then you're going to do what you can to protect it aren't you but it's easy for us to judge I think we've got to be a bit careful I think China can probably well they may be forced to by everyone else to sort things out there Yes, getting too close to politics now, but this so I'm going to steer away. <laughs> the now. thing is, it, it it's not the verse, it's not the first zoonotic disease to exactly. jump and you know cause a pandemic, and you know I, I don't think it will be the last either. They're there. Um, oh, absolutely, they're actually scientifically they're incredibly interesting as well. Well, I think oh, they yeah. are anyway. Yeah, it's it is fascinating how they just jump between species because some of these diseases, I forget what one is. Some of them jump massive jumps across you know things diseases from reptiles into mammals you're like that's a millions of years of evolution tens of millions of years of evolution not hundreds of gap and the diseases jump between those two species it's just well, we it should, shouldn't happen <laughs> it does it's a, it's 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 doing what we do isn't it it's trying to succeed yeah. it doesn't know yeah. it you yeah. know forget that but yeah as you say Rick, i mean they are fascinating things it's just i wish they weren't here yeah. yeah, I'm not going to think... cliche and quote the Matrix, which everyone seems to be doing at the moment. That line from Agent Smith about humans being viruses. I'm going to stop there because it's just too cliche for me. <laughs> but, yeah. I think it's I was having a conversation, funny enough, with my neighbours about this earlier and saying it's a lot of these diseases. They make that initial jump from animal to human, but they then have to make the jump for it to be spread human to human. And a lot of them actually don't succeed. Yeah. But the ones that do, you know, we have no... The immunity against so oh, what's, what's the um disease you can get from cat poo i forget what it is now reminded oh, me i don't have a cat 
a disease that affects mice and cat. Oh, it's gone from my head now. Oh, well, I'll do it in the follow-up next time. But this disease, uh, is it Toxoplasma or Toxoplasmus or Toxocaris? It's one of those two. I should have researched this first, but I just thought of it. Basically, this disease, it affects mice to, and makes them run toward, rather than run away from cat urine, run towards them. So it can get into cats. Uh. So the cat eats it. It's like it's not a virus. It's a plasmodium or bacteria or something. And cat eats the mouse, infects the cat and matures in the cat and makes eggs or cysts or whatever it is, which the cat poots out. And then the life cycle goes round and round. But we can catch it um, from the cat poo, but it can't reproduce in us and foxes can catch it as well and it can make foxes a lot more tame a lot less fearful so some of these tame foxes might be because of um and then you get all the cat owners going oh the fox gave my cat this disease but it cannot reproduce in the fox it can affect it but it can't reproduce so you can't catch it from foxes so that's an example of sort of what you're saying there Vic. it's sort of like you know a lot of these diseases some of them can infect us I believe a lot of the bird flu strains are like that. They can affect directly human, but they can't jump from human to human. Yeah, yeah so every bovine for tuberculosis is the same. You can catch it directly from a cow, but you can't catch it between people. So mm, uh, fascinating. Oh. Diseases are fascinating, if horrible in many yeah. ways, but also vital in natural ecosystems. So it's uh, like parasites. Oh, we've got to do a parasite episode one day because they're just amazing. Right, shall we move on to our main topic? So, Stephen, you're quite a prolific author. I counted on Wikipedia. Was it 23 books you've written? Are you keeping count? It's about 40, actually, but they're, 40. they're always, on, always on there. But that includes ones I've done with other people. And oh, of course, yeah. This is, I, I think that was just a self ago, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it seems quite a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm still struggling <laughs> with the first chapter of one. So. Yeah. I've done one. I've, yeah. I've got one. And uh, I'm working on two and three. Yeah. Oh, good. That's nice. I did start, I'd have actually started a second book as well, but then I stopped myself because I forgot to finish the first one first. So can you give any tips to people on you know, how to write a book and not dawdle eight years like me? Funny enough, I'm doing this, um, well, there's a great story, isn't there, that a novelist, a woman meets a novelist at a dinner party and she says, oh, I'm writing a novel. And the novelist looks at her and says, yes, neither am I. Yeah. <laughs> or Douglas Adams' line, he said, I love you. And Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy guy, he said, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they whiz by. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually a different kind of author. I'm like A.A. Gill, who used to say, when he was asked if he was a journalist or a writer, he said, I'm a journalist. I don't get writer's block. Yeah. Um, you know, I write for a living, and basically, normally someone's paying me, and I'm lucky in that I'm writing about a subject I'm interested in. And I just sort of sit down and do it. It, it comes very naturally to me you know some authors write amazing books and it's agony for them to write and I quite admire that you know because maybe it's agony you spend more time on it but I'm not really like that I, I like communicating I like other people I like people reading my books and I get a lot of nice feedback from Twitter the nicest thing anyone ever said a woman came up to me and said oh, I love your book about your village she said it was so easy to read and then she looked very embarrassed and flustered and she said I'm sorry that's not something to say to a proper writer is it and I said no it's exactly the right thing to say because yeah. a book should be easy to read and if it isn't that's my fault not yours you know um so yeah so I think the key thing is write about something you're passionate about and just write write it out don't edit yourself as you go but don't use long words the biggest problem people have is they use long complicated words they think they have to be sort of they have to use words they wouldn't use in conversation if they were talking to you. Well, what you should always do if you write anything, you read it out loud. If you read it out loud, you think, oh, I wouldn't use that word in conversation. Well, don't get rid of it. Put something else in. That's a good tip. 
It is a really good tip, actually. <laughs> Remember, I, well, do that... run, I do run an MA course in nature writing that takes two years to do, so I've got quite a lot of tips. Yeah. <laughs> although, although I'm guessing, you know, big big words are allowed when it's scientific. Yeah, big words are allowed, <laughs> but great scientific writers, great great scientific communicators, Tim Burkhead, people like that, uh, Joe Wimpany, who I, I went to Peru with, you know, they write really clearly. Dominic Cousins, my friend who writes books on bird behaviour, and he writes about quite complicated things in a very straightforward way. And that's that's the art of a great writer. I mean, Dominic has great lines like, how do you tell if a, a lone medium-sized corvid flies over your head and you know it's a rook or a carrion crow, but you, you haven't got your binoculars and it calls, how do you know which one it is? And it's a serious question. And the answer is, a rook sounds like a crow who's been on an anger management course. And that's absolutely true. Your rooks go, ah, 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 and crows go, ah. <laughs> and once you know that, you'll always know the sound. You know, I can look up and think, oh, it'll be rooks, you know. And of course, ravens go, Ugh. but, um, you know, so, so Dominic's a great example of someone who writes very clearly about science and he's a scientist, but it's readable. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? As um, I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, like Neil, the same, you know, being scientist by training. It's is finding that way to communicate it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when I give a talk. I love giving talks to general audiences like Women's Institute group. You have intelligent, interested people who probably don't know a huge amount about the subject. They might, some of them. But whereas with a sort of bird club, they're all obsessive birders. Well, that's much less interesting because, Mm. you know, they probably know all already. But it's nice giving a talk or writing a book for people who are not. You know, I don't write my books for birders at all. Books like the robin and the wren are not written for birds. They're written for the general public. You know, they're written for normal people, not like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not weirdos. Yeah. Not weirdos with pond sheds. No. <laughs> pond sheds, that's good. Yeah. It's been nicknamed a few. It's either Pond Man Cave, Pond Man Lab, or Pond Man Shed. I haven't quite decided what one it's going to be yet, but it's a shed. <laughs> it's a shed with a, a kitchen worktop propped up on some wood and a and an old office frame so it's high enough up for me to photograph without breaking my back enough and full of loads of junk because it's a shed it has to be full of junk it's not a shed yeah breaks the definition basically all my junk's in there because my wife's filled up all the space along with the children in the house so anything that's not valuable is in my shed they'll they'll take up even more space that should be fun (laughs) (laughs) good luck with that one Moving on to broadcasting, as I say, we could probably talk for hours on just the, the book thing. So if you think something else, we can come back to it. Broadcasting, producing. So was it the first series of Springwatch you produced? Yeah, yeah. I spent 29 years at the BBC, which is more than you get for murder nowadays. And I, <laughs> and I spent half of it in BBC education making programs with people. And then I met a little bearded chap called Bill Oddie and we started making a series there. We made it in BBC education and it went down very well. And we then moved to the natural history unit in Bristol, which I always say is like you're playing for sort of Yeovil Town or Billericay or something, and you get asked to join Liverpool or Manchester City. You know, it was like that because suddenly yeah. we were there in, you know, David Attenborough's backyard. But yeah, so I, I worked a lot with Bill. I worked a bit with David, Chris Packham, Kate Humble, Simon King, you know, all of them really. They're very nice people. Oh, I've met most of those people. Yeah. They? Nice. Mike Dilger. Oh, yeah. I know Mike well, of course, don't I? <laughs> no, I was very lucky to turn my hobby into my job and travel around Britain and the world, yeah, you know. Yes. And making TV programs is like nailing jelly to the wall. It's a pain in the ass, but 
know, afterwards it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I do remember watching Bill Oddie, Birding with Bill Oddie, which you were a producer on, I believe. Yeah. It was the late 90s. I could have swore it was earlier than that. No, it was 97, my... the first series. Yeah. Yeah. I did a little bit of research for once this morning, looking at all that. Yeah, it was, I would have been, I just, just did a mash in my head. I'd have been about, oh, I'd have been my early teens back then. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I always like it when people say they, they watched yeah. it. But what's interesting now is you have to really be, be sort of in, almost in your 30s to have seen it. So I meet, you know, I was showing some film students recently who were in their, who were 20, 21, you know, and I was showing them clips of it. And some of them knew Bill, some of them had seen him. But, of course, none of them remembered the series because it was literally before they were born, which made me feel very old. Oh, God, yeah, that does make me feel old when the kids come. and then. <laughs> yes. Except the interesting thing is I do my test and I do it with the kids at my children's school. I've done it with these students say yeah just i want you to think of a i'm I'm going to do a bit of mind reading now so i want you to think of a a wildlife television presenter okay and i'm going to say a name and i want you to put your hand up if that was the first name that came into your head and guess what i can read their minds because i say david attenborough and every hand goes up and do you know what's interesting 10 years ago if you said David Attenborough was a class full of kids, at least half of them would have never have heard of him. That's it's changed. Mm. Yeah. It's changed. I, I once had a group of brownies and none, and I said, like David Attenborough, this is probably seven, eight years ago. And they looked blank, the whole group of 15 of them, you know, eight, nine sort of year olds. Yeah. Complete blank at me. I was like, seriously, I said, well, what do you watch? Oh, the only way is Essex. And I'm like, so yeah. sure. Mind you, um, they loved that, the pond dipping though in the end. So it was, it was just kind of, but now everyone knows who David Attenborough is. The yeah, whole generation. The other person, of course, for that generation and indeed up into their twenties now is Steve Factual. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Like, like on Deadly Sixty, I use that that line so many times. When I finally meet Steve, I have to thank him. Yeah. Well, I I embarrassed my teenage children about three years ago. The last time all of them came to Bird Fair, and they would have been about thirteen, thirteen, and fourteen, and we were in you know the green room where the presenters go. And Steve walked in and I said, oh, I can't resist this. So, Steve, would you mind if I took a photo of you with my kids? And they're like, Dad, don't embarrass them. <laughs> of course, they really loved it because, yeah. A, he's such a nice man. Yeah. And B, of course, they absolutely, particularly the boys, just worshipped him when they were like oh, seven. Eight. So it was lovely. Well, I heard he hosted the 60th anniversary of Essex Wildlife Trust. And his talk went on a bit long. And, of course, everyone was... Oh, there's a few you know people wanting to get autographs for their kids and stuff like that and a few uh older kids there and stuff like that and i think he was there till half 12 making sure everyone got a signature yeah. and all that kind of stuff and then right at the end my friend who was a photographer at the event um said oh, look, i know you're you've been going all night but would you mind just quickly recording a message for my daughter he's like yeah sure go on and he still did it like, half past midnight he, god knows how far he had to drive home and of course he's got young kids at home as well so yeah. but he still you know he was there for to do a job and he did it till he bit like Dave Attenborough at the Natural History Museum doing the last, was it life, what's the last life series he did? Was it Life in Cold Blood? Yes, it was, yeah. And he did the book, I think it was for that, um, or it might have been his life stories book, and Natural History Museum were prepared for, you know, a few hundred people and like a thousand people turned up yeah. and they had to shut the queue and he was due out, he was due there to be about half hour to an hour and he was there for over two hours yeah. making sure everyone that queued up got their book signed and a handshake and you just think, that's typical. The nice thing about wildlife TV presenters is yeah. almost without exception, they're very nice people because they care about the same things as we do. Yeah. So, you know, working with Bill, who, who occasionally, you know, people say, oh, it could be quite difficult. I said, no, yeah. he's yeah. only being difficult because he wants it to be right. 
Yeah. Mm. You know, and he was, uh, you know, we we work really well together, and and you know, I've, I I do still think that Bill mm. is the only genuine genius I ever worked with. I mean, the mm. others are brilliant, and don't get me wrong, they're fantastic and they're brilliant in their own way, but he was different from all of them, and he actually invented the style of presenting they all use now, which is the sort of, you know, look at the bird, mumble at the camera, say you're not quite sure yeah. what it is. You know, be, take you for a walk. That's what what Bill did. He take, took me yeah. for, and that was. I, used to love it. I, I always remember. I still remember now, and it kind of haunted me a bit because I still haven't definitely seen a wild crane. But there's an episode where you're in Norfolk and he's going around Norfolk Broads. It was is it Norfolk Broads, or maybe it's Cambridgeshire. Anyway, somewhere it's Norfolk Broads somewhere. And right at the end, end of the day, you're standing. He's standing on the bridge waiting for the roosting cranes to come in. Of course, in the 90s, that was a bit rarer than it is now as well and i just remember thinking oh i must do that one day and it's <laughs> and yeah. what reading up on the program I'm thinking, oh, i still haven't done that um, have i've seen that. cranes at slimbridge but they don't count because they've just been released and yeah i've yes, seen them at pencil we've, we've got cranes here yeah oh. there you go neil you need to come to somerset oh, i keep meaning to i've got to see the blooming perish as well and the, and the dragonfly roost. roost yeah what's the dragon and the cranes have you have you not been? Where is that? Ham Wall. What with the um with the, the four spot, spot chasers. The four spot chasers. The Where's thousands it? of them that roost together. No, really, I've seen them in huge numbers, but I've not seen them in the evening. This is uh, at dusk, presumably. In June. No, no, but you need to go first thing in the morning, really. Oh, right. um, yeah. So basically, they last year they had two roosts on the reserve, but one of them was in the off limits area, and the other one um, is in an area that you can actually. It's just off one of the trails. Yeah. And they roost in their thousands in one particular corner of the reserve. Cool. And it only goes on for maybe about a week to 10 days. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. If you get there, you know, for sunrise and you walk down there and you won't, you won't see them to start with. But then as that sun comes up, they all start making their way up. And there are literally thousands of them there. And it's just. I've seen large numbers there later in the day. That's brilliant. Oh, you must let me know. We'll, we'll meet up then. Well, that yeah. will be June, presumably. Uh, no, it's actually May. May. Well, let's hope the, if, yeah. well the lockdown's off, <laughs> and I'm still um, full of Yeah, all right. May, May 2021. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've heard yeah, very much to my upsetness that bird fair's been cancelled this year. Oh, yes. Oh, that's right. I meant to put in the news. Yes, I totally yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, very, I got the email. They say there might be a virtual one. I don't quite sure how that will work, but uh, maybe we can give talks or something. But because it's you know, so much effort, people like Tim Appleton and Sarah and the team there. Carol, you know, they put so much effort into it and, all the, you know, all the visitors and all the foreign visitors, you know. Yeah. I think so, they're, they're cancelling now, aren't they? So, so people don't spend a fortune gearing up and then... Uh, no, it would have been... I mean, I think they knew, you know, they have to do it. It's like all the sporting events. Yeah, I, I think... It'll be by August that we could have gone, but that wouldn't, it still wouldn't work because people have got to book flights and things. And I, I think the thing is as well, like, we we don't know what the situation is going to be in in you know, different countries. So whether people can come or, you know, cross borders and that. And it's, it's one of those, I think for something like bird fair, you get people that come from all over the world, you know, they, they just have to, they have to make that decision early. Um, The first time that weekend in August, I've been here for 29 years because I not been at bird fair because it was my, yeah, I think, I think everyone apart from the first three. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of people going to lose this. Well, you've still gone to everyone, hopefully, but uh, yes, yes. yeah, I used to, I used to tell myself Not, I'd only go every have it without me. You don't think it's just a trick to stop me going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, don't tell him, don't tell him. <laughs> yeah, no. 
Yeah, don't say. Yeah, Mike Dill just told me to do. <laughs> so, have you got any stories off the top of your head you can think of from your time broadcasting? Uh, yeah, well, I, know, I had some great moments with Bill. In fact, I do talks where I show clips from them, and there's some crackers there, including the killer whale that came out in Argentina, grabbed a seal, nearly bit it in two, then dropped it because it beached itself and the seal escaped. So that was good, baby seal, you know, because we couldn't have shown it had been blood everywhere. <laughs> uh, the time we went to St Kilda, took us three, took me three and a half days with Michaela Strachan to get from home to Antarctica, and it took me four days with Bill to get from home <laughs> to St Kilda, and Bill was seasick virtually the whole way. Oh, no. He said once, famously, he said, that the trouble with being seasick is the first thing is you think you're going to die and then it dawns on you to your horror that you're not <laughs> um him and chris watson were uh, sound recorders were ill all the way me and john aitchison were sitting up on deck with john filming minky whales leaping out of the water like sardines so it's quite an interesting um trip but yeah that was fun no we but yeah went to some amazing places poland of course with the lovely marek Rakowski, who you know i normally see at bird fair with his family um Mallorca, where else did we go? You know, Shetland. We uh, Bill being attacked by skewers in Shetland. We, you know, we had some great fun actually. It was a lovely thing to do because it was my hobby and turning my hobby into my job and getting other people to share our enthusiasm for wildlife, which was the, you know, the the thing really what makes me tick really. Yeah, it's always a thrill. I mean, I, obviously I'm not doing it on TV, but when you talk, it is. I, I quite often get told, especially when I'm talking on concrete and stuff like that, that my enthusiasm comes across. For oh, it. It? And, they, and they discover things that, I mean, even when I go to a naturalist group, if I talk about pond creatures, I'm lucky if there's one or two people in the audience that have any familiarity with most of the things I'm showing them. It's, uh, yeah. and they're just wowed by what's in their ponds. It's, uh, it's always great. And obviously, when I, I mean, I saw that when we went to see those dragonflies and damselflies that you took me to see and mm. the other stuff, the bee wolves and things. You know, I'm okay on things like the butterflies and dragonflies and damselflies, but once we got to Canvey Wick and you were showing me, incredible things there you know and it was great it's like you know it's like if i go out with brett westwood or mike dilger you know people who have an area of knowledge that i don't have i love oh yeah getting that enthusiasm you know which are... yeah you can't beat someone with uh, spending time with someone with greater knowledge or local knowledge i always find that you just yeah you know you could walk around i remember i went to the new forest i think i went twice and i saw some nice things and then I spoke to a man that is basically an oracle of the New Forest. I mean, the New Forest Association, uh, New, uh, National Park Association, get him to survey for like goshawks and hobbies for them. Yeah, even yeah. Though he doesn't, and the stuff he doesn't know about the New Forest isn't worth knowing. Yeah. And yeah, with a few tips from him and being shown, he showed me some fantastic fungi, yeah. like, really rare stuff and uh, top bloke. But yeah, well, like you say. The nice thing about doing the Accidental Countryside book, the one I, I met you with, was that I... You know, I met people like you everywhere I went. You know, I'd meet either mm. professionals or semi-professionals or amateur in the best sense, naturalists, you know, Northern Ireland, Wales, whatever, you know, north of England, Scotland. You know, and I had this sort of tour of the country to all these strange places that had been built. You know, the premise of the book, The Accidental Countryside, is that we built these places for us and then humans, you know, either moved out or wildlife either moved in or coexisted with us or we abandoned mm. the place and then they moved in, you know. So you end up with fantastic wildlife, and that included, you know, military sites, golf courses, gravel pits, quarries, and, of course, the Canvey Wick Brownfield site. Yeah, for those who don't know, Canvey Wick is, it was going to be an oil refinery in the 70s, and then the, I believe it's the oil crash, crashing, wasn't it, or something like that? Made right, it... an, oil, an oil crisis. 
Mm. Funny enough, it was the it wasn't the price crash. It was the opposite. It, the prices went up, but we couldn't get oil because uh, mm. some Middle Eastern war, I think, you know. Yeah. And we ended up they ended up never opening it. And of course, they never actually built it, did they? They they no. made the storage tanks, and I think took them down. Yeah. Yeah. So you got big, you got these huge, great concrete circles. Of, what? Must be sort of 50, 100 metres across, aren't they? And got all these, half of the plants here, I think, are garden escapes and stuff. And yeah, there's a lot all of these garden... pioneer species. Yeah. Just... But then it's fantastic a... invertebrates, isn't it? Oh, I mean, yeah. it's, I think it's second only to Dungeness. Well, it depends who you ask. <laughs> there's oh, some people, per, per hectare, it's got more than anywhere else, I think. Really? Uh, Mintvia claims it's got the most species sometimes, and so does uh, Wiccan Fen. So it depends how you define yeah, it. I yeah, yeah. Well, Mintvia. Yeah. It's got. A species endemic to the site entirely, I believe, and it's quite interesting because it's a weird site because it's a brownfield site. It's rich because it isn't managed, but if you don't manage it at all, it'll just revert to woodland. And yeah, a bit of debate with some Canvey residents. I think I might have mentioned this to you when we were walking around. And they were all very the RSOB helped with the management along with bug life, and and they cut a load of the trees down or back and sort of thinned out the scrub and stuff like that. And people were like, oh, it would have been nice to have some mature woodland on Canvey. And you're thinking, well, that's going to take like two three hundred years anyway yeah, yeah. and this site is unique oh, yeah. you know and i have to admit a couple of years later when all the scrub sort of scrubbed up thicker and they started getting nightingales on the site um, a lot of the people <laughs> went nope fair enough they were right it's really nice now and they're doing i, I believe they've been doing the scrapes for the bee wolves again this winter so uh, yeah, you folks... manage places like that don't you normally yeah. but you're yeah. right and the main point about all the places in my book was that none of them have been sprayed or intensively farmed right. And that's why they're good. But I was talking to someone the other day about it, and I was saying, ironically, I wish I hadn't had to write the book, because if the rest of the countryside was any good, we yeah. wouldn't take any notice of places like Camden. They'd be good, but so would everywhere else. Exactly. So they'd sort of become irrelevant, um, instead of which, you know, Camden is an absolute beacon in the, you know, in the sort of pantheon of, of nature reserves. But that well, is the problem with Britain, isn't it? The countryside itself is pretty poor. Well, um, I've... I've... I've I've spoken to, I've had interesting conversations with people. Uh, I had to, I have to say this about sound like an arrogant prat, but um, less knowledgeable. And I, you try and explain to them that building on the green, from a wildlife perspective at least, not from the NIMBY perspective, from the wildlife perspective, building on a greenfield site of farmland is better for wildlife than of building course, on a brownfield yeah. site. Well, like um, Chris Baines in the book, where my old yeah. mentor Chris Baines and colleague, a lovely man, and he, you know, he came up with a line. How do you improve the biodiversity of an arable field? Build a housing estate on it. Yeah. And of course, it's, it's from, right, you know, but yeah. Actually, it's it's ridiculous, but it's true quite I often. I go it? to a housing estate in the book, yeah. which is done in, near Aylesbury in conjunction with the RSPB, and it's fantastic for wildlife because oh, they're, that, yeah. they're building it really well. It's a really impressive place. So you can do it. And that's because it was built on a greenfield site. So they had very high levels that they had to sort of reach, meet in terms of preserving well enhancing biodiversity really because there wasn't any wildlife there before no, exactly. but there is now you know so yeah well one one of the good things with current planning is because of uh, the eye on flooding almost every new estate has to have a uh, what they call it like a flood pool or flood yeah, lake I, yeah well this place and, had, had dragonflies in little yeah. leaves were feeding in one of them you know i mean i've had the uh, flood pools at stansted airport last year so obviously when they expanded the airport I think it's fairly recent, these pools. They've done some work over there. I didn't find out until a couple of months ago, annoyingly. Had lesser emperor and red-veined data dragonfly on there, two of the rarest species in Britain. And along with, you know, a lot of the other things. And I think some reported scarce emerald there, which is another rare species. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I told you last year, didn't I? One reason you came down to Essex was to try and get the Southern Emerald, wasn't it? That's um, right. Yeah. A reclaimed landfill site in Essex. They're, they're capping it off. They're finishing capping it off. They got a volunteer surveyor going around and he put on Facebook, what's this damselfly? It looks a bit like a scarce emerald. I'm looking at it going, it's not a scarce, it's not a willow. And then it dawned on me it's a Southern yeah. emerald damselfly, which is, again, one of the rare. Okay, it's a recent colonist, which is why it's probably so rare, but it's still quite a specialist species. Absolutely. And it's this fantastic pond, absolutely perfect for it, full of scarce well, emeralds as well. I missed last year and the year before. I went to the site and I just got the directions wrong in, in west of London, Beaconsfield. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's still it's the only damsel, British damselfly I haven't seen now, actually. Oh, well. well, you'll have to come to Essex. Well, well hopefully the lockdown will be gone by in August, July, August. I'll tell you, if it's clear that weekend yeah. when Bird was on, yeah, I'll come over. You know, you never know. Yeah. It'd be nice to get out again, wouldn't it? But for the moment, you know, we're, I'm enjoying wildlife where I am. I had a very good sighting wheat here yesterday, you know, first of the year uh, that I've seen on my little patch at the back where I do my exercise. And then today this Chetty's Warbler. So I'm very happy, you know, actually hearing and seeing birds that, you know, I'm not expecting because I'd never spend this much time here, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never managed a decent picture of a goldfinch and I've got them coming into my feeders in my garden. And I've always keep thinking, I must make the effort one day. Well, <laughs> I haven't got much excuse well, now. Exactly. Have I? Well, Other Neil, than we my children running in the garden. Because um, we, we've got napweed growing in the garden. Yeah. I've no idea. Because I, I uh, when we built, when I built the pond, uh, cleared a little area to do a wildflower patch as well. Try and track the invertebrate things. When we moved in, it was grass and decking which there was just no life there at all. But uh, napweed, common napweeds appeared there. And last year, about August, September time, I think the most I've had, and there was about seven or eight goldfinches feeding off it. Yeah, well, they love napweed, yeah. It's yeah, just so amazing. Beautiful. And to see it in such a natural environment as well, yeah, rather than, you know, not on a bird feeder or anything. Yeah, people would go mad, wouldn't they, if that was a rare bird? Yeah. yeah. Plants do get overlooked, poor things. I mean, there's they built Amazon Warehouse down the road to me. There's basically a patch of, a big patch of grazing marsh between me and Tilbury. And before I moved in, they built a huge school on one corner of it. Then they've built a warehouse, a bunch of warehouses on another corner of it. And then they built an Amazon warehouse on another corner of it. And the ecologist went down there and said, oh, it's all what of the common rushes down there. Um, but we've got loads of records from sort of a year or two before, unless they all died out m- mysteriously, of some rare rushes and stuff down there. But of course, the ecologist declared it all common stuff, probably didn't know it was IDing. And uh, yeah. it got built on. Yeah, and that used to be shorted hours hunting down there in winter, but there's not much chance of that these days. So, uh, well, the trouble yeah. is these places generally aren't protected. And if they're called brownfield sites, mm. you know, I get really cross with that yeah. name because there are, of course, lots of brownfield sites that are very sensible places to build on. You know, if you've got, you know, down the road from you, you've got a petrol station that's closed down. It's not needed anymore. Maybe a superstore's been built somewhere else. It makes sense to build yeah. on that because it's not going to have anything, that, you know, special on it. But if it's somewhere like Canvey Wick or, or Lodge Hill in Kent, which we were you know, more nighting oh yeah. Britain, and that was really built on, very close to being built mm. on. So uh, It's pretty much gone, but they're, apparently they're still hovering around there or when they build on part of it or something like that, as I've been hearing recently. That's right, rum- yeah, to the edge and that could, that could yeah. be. Yeah. But the problem is you build an estate next to it, then they put paths through it, and then everyone, literally every man and his dog goes in there with it <laughs> off the lead. Yeah. And cats, yeah. I mean, uh, Rainer Marsh, I've, I've mentioned before on this program, Rainer Marsh is the lizard colony at the end of the reserve with all the building estate next door. There's more and more cats over there, and I'm seeing less and less lizards. Um, but, you same. know, interestingly, actually here, uh, so we've lived more or less in the same area now since 2011, so nine years we've lived in this area. 
moved to this house four years ago and you used to see a lot more frogs and suddenly cat numbers have gone up not yeah. seeing you know I've got, I've got a couple of very distinctive frogs that come into the garden i've not seen them at all this year um but the cat numbers have just gone through the roof and you know I've, i fear for the for the little little ones when they leave my pond in june and make their way but it's, i think cats are doing so much damage now yeah well the other the wildlife. 50 million pheasants being released into the country yeah i was going to mention mm. that which, My little, yeah. They peck adders, they peck slow worms, you know, they'll peck at anything if it moves. So they're not eating snakes and lizards, but they have not. Oh, they are, they do eat the lizards, that's oh, for sure. They? Yeah, there's, there's a oh, couple of pictures of them eating common lizards. But they will, they will just kill adders. Yeah. Um, well, we've had it, a few instances, one of the yeah. one of the sites, obviously not been up there this year, unfortunately, but one of the sites I'm normally up at doing some survey work, we've had quite a few adders that have, you know the pheasant population up there is, is quite large and yeah they they just take them out yeah, yeah we're lucky here because it's a bit wet for pheasants on the ground here in the west somerset there's thousands of them but near where i live there's very few but I hope there's a lot more up on the mendips yes yeah, absolutely yeah yeah there's, there's a there's a wonderful pheasant that sits outside my office making a racket all the time and i do don't get me wrong i do love them they're lovely but i keep seeing them down uh, some of you uh one of the early episodes i was talking about um having 10 lizards on a log I'd park, placed out under a bit of cover and stuff. And I saw one in January, bizarrely, which was on the podcast. I was expecting to have seen one by now. And obviously I haven't been at work. I only popped him and walked past the log twice last week um, when I was doing work. Bright sunny day, not a sign of them. And I've seen lots of pheasants hanging around around there. And I do worry. Hopefully they're just dispersed into the meadow, but there's not that much cover there as well. But yeah, it does concern me somewhat. But yeah, like I say, that's something that's, you know, a lot of people like to attack Chris Packham but, and the World Justice team, but I praise them for pushing in Nature England. Well, I have heard various stories about research into pheasants' impact onto reptiles and other wildlife being, how should we say, it, universities have been reluctant to fund them because they might upset their backers and funders. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, although, yeah. Wild. The Game Wildlife Conservation Trust are trying to get ahead of the curve, I think, and have uh, issued a PhD. But one of the study's aims is to analyse pheasant poo to see what's in them. But someone has fed a dead slow worm to, I think, was it, I don't know if it's a pheasant or a chicken, and there was no trace of it in the poo, the remains. It just dissolved a lot of it. So, yes, you know, yes. so hopefully they'll do a thorough job of, you know, making sure. There's a study from Exeter University, wasn't it? it but it wasn't conclusive. It just sort of it did suggest that pheasants were not a good thing for native wildlife. Well, when you've got double the biomass of pheasants, have we got all the other wild birds? That can't be a good sign. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. No, it is insane, isn't it? I mean, imagine if someone said, imagine if you did that with dogs or cat. Well, we have kind of with cats. <laughs> just let dogs run. The the worst thing is with pheasants, isn't it? Is that their livestock, until the person rearing them lets them go. So legally speaking, you could have a load of pheasants by the side of the M25, let hundreds of them go. They cause all these car accidents and you go, wild animal, nothing to do with me, gov. Yeah. That's I, don't, right. I don't know how that would stand up in court. but <laughs> no, It's a very, very strange uh, situation with pheasants. I, I feel we've, we've dwelled on pheasants a bit there. <laughs> but yes, uh, a, a pet um, concern of mine, should we say, uh, as much as I love them. <laughs> in fact, so photogenic, but <laughs> sort of yes, horrifying. So, do you have any questions, Stephen? Vic? Well, we've we've got this one from Alan, um, oh, who's yes. who's a fan fan of the show, and he said, "What are you most looking forward to seeing 
mm. when we can get out after the lockdown? That's a very good question, Alan. I mean, one of the things is obviously I don't visit at the moment my two local patches, one of which is the sort of reed bed on the edge of the levels and one is the coastal area. And particularly the coastal area, you know, it, it's I'm missing that lovely change you get where you often see things for the first time down there and things surprise you in spring in particular you suddenly get you know 20 wimbrel or coming through you know now i might get that here i did i remember on my 50th birthday which um sadly was nine and a half months ago to do the maths <laughs> we were taking the kids to school and there were 11 wimbrel in the field that is now my new patch where i do my dog walking and my bike riding at the back of my house so maybe, well, you know, I've had Wimbrel over the house once or twice, so maybe I'll get that this year. But it, it's more the places we go to. I think, you know, one of the joys of this has been I'm, I'm really focusing on this patch at the back of me. I've had 55 species this year of which a bird of which I think 45 or something I've had since the lockdown. And I've had some real surprises. Marsh area flew over. I was out with my wife for a walk on her birthday a couple of weeks ago and a marsh area flew past. Wheat here yesterday, Chessie's warbler today, you know, who knows, swallows the other day. So next couple of weeks, I'm really excited, actually. And I'm trying to not think about other places I was going to go, like Japan in May and Turkey in June, oh. both which are now off. Um, yeah, I'd managed to persuade my wife that I needed a birthday present, which was a five-day birding trip to Turkey. And she said yes in a in a unguarded moment. And I'm taking my two 15-year-old kids uh George and Daisy to Japan to see their older brother who works there in May mm -hmm. and I was rather looking forward to sneaking out to the parks and doing some birding so I've never been to East Asia at all but yeah you know in the end you have to go with what you've got don't you so what I'm doing is saying actually this year I will see more butterflies in the garden I will see more birds in my garden in the local area than I've had really since the first year we were here when I my garden was my local patch for the first two or three years so I think you have to make the best of what we've got. I feel very privileged to live where I do in that I do live in a beautiful place, even though I'm only going, you know, the furthest I'm going from my house is about a mile as the crow flies on my bike ride, you know, and walking the dog. But it's there's enough there to keep me going. And the next month or two is going to be lovely. I think if the lockdown goes on after that, by about July, I'll be thinking, I've seen everything now because <laughs> you know what it's like with birds the first six months of the year you basically see about 90 percent of the species you're going to see them. but yeah you know I think you know we have to thank you know we just have to be thankful that we're not ill yeah because in two weeks time I reach the age where uh I'm suddenly at high risk statistically I'm not sure it makes much difference but the birthday party is not quite as good as it was going to be but never mind I'm just slightly gutted and my favorite wildlife month of wildlife wise month of the year is May Absolutely. Although they are talking about the peak being April now, which is not, not to say a good thing because obviously it means less time to prepare. But hopefully we'll get out by the end of May. I'm hoping. Yeah, that's I, think, March. I, I think they're June at least because I, I, by July I'm starting to feel like things are waning a little bit. Even though that's the peak for the you know the Essex dragonflies, it kind of feels like that not the best is behind you, but most of it's behind you already. Yeah, and you're kind of like, oh, I've got another year to wait now. Sort of. But, but then Very when negative you... way of looking at it, but I know it's a. Then yeah, if you think out. about it, when you right, when you get to pay, pay to come. <laughs> when, yeah. when you get to kind of July and then you go into August and September, you know you've got all the spiders and the grasshoppers and the crickets exactly. starting I, I to come out. That. So I always forget that. Sort of you bit, know yeah. they're. I, I love kind of going out. You really. These, you these you have. I mean, you know the you can still find some fantastic grasshoppers and, and bush crickets. I photographed great green bush crickets in Somerset 
yeah. in back end of September. And one site has Rufus grasshoppers as well. Um, so I've been yeah, able to pick those up. And well, Somerset's a fantastic county, isn't it, for wildlife? It's a bit underrated. It, 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 it bird-wise, it doesn't get all the real rarities, but it's got enough rarities that live here all the time. Like I, I did see five cattle egrets when I was driving the other day to go to the shops. There were five cattle egrets in the field. So, you know. You won't get much sympathy from me about moaning being underrated when I live in Essex in the shadow of Kent, Cambridge, <laughs> Norfolk, Suffolk. Yeah, Essex is very good for uh, For dragonflies. I, mean, I feel quite yeah. privileged to be the and, dragonfly and reporter. We finally got Norfolk it. Hawker, by the way, in Essex. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yes, and you were going yeah. to call the southern migrant dragon uh, hawker Essex hawker, weren't you? Yes. But, yeah, my my, my petition to do so didn't go down. Very well. <laughs> oh, great. I think well, it had had it was valid until about um, till year four last when it turned up the everywhere in, in yeah, England. Yeah. But uh, well, I'll be yeah. this spring it might be around here. Yeah, I mean, you say the season. I mean, there might be another lockdown. Let's not get too negative. But last November, I had a middle of November, I had a southern hawker flying around at work. So, yeah, and, yeah. Then, and now we've got willow emeralds. Or oh, you guys might not have. Huh? Um, now we've got willow emeralds. They last till October easily. Yeah, but you so, show one. Very nice dragonfly as well. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, you got them right at the start of the season. The the you this year, if you went anywhere near any half decent or any half suitable water body for them, they were there. And meadows nearby. They were, they, they, I almost got bored of them. There were so many of them. Is it how they, they get so common so quickly. Oh, it's, but yeah. it's quite interesting, their distribution, how they... I mean, we're going to do a Dragonfly episode, we'll talk about it then, but they, they sort of came in, and like the small red eyes, they just seemed to just... They hit a point where they just stopped spreading from the southeast. And we had those two hot summers, and especially last summer, they went... Um, the Willow Emeralds went from... Where were they north? Up to, I think they got as far as uh, Lincolnshire. They jumped all the way up to North Yorkshire last year. Yeah, yeah. Obviously no, I think yeah, dragonflies respond so much quicker than butterflies, for example. Or even yeah. dragonflies, yeah. But it might, it, it might be because, um, you know, with, with the dragonflies and damselflies, they need the water bodies. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the butterflies are, are very reliant on, you know, like the meadows, the gardens or, or whatever yeah. to, to lay their eggs. And, yeah, we've, we've seen big changes here. So a couple of years ago when we had that big heat wave, like the, the eight weeks of 30 degree heat and everything was just dry and parched. The following year, we actually saw a decline in some of the butterfly species that would have been, you know, kind of would have been their flight period and also kind of egg laying period. Yeah, that's right. If it's too hot. So I think that, you know, that does happen with a lot of things, doesn't it? If it's too hot, then it, it's too hot. People yeah. think like sun. They like they actually like the typical English summer, which is three fine days and a two fine days and a thunderstorm or something like that. Yeah. Cool. And I think likewise if you get it like the other end of the scale, we had a very wet summer, like in one of the sites that I I've surveyed quite often right on my doorstep here, always used to be an amazing site for marbled whites. Incredible. You'd go up there and just be so many marbled whites up there. And one summer we just had, it was just the worst summer possible. And it just, they started their flight season, mating, laying their eggs, and then it rained for about three weeks. And, you know, the following year, you were lucky if you, if you counted double figures of marbled whites at this site. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's natural peaks and troughs with mm. any species anyway, but, you know, it, it's never really recovered from that. Yeah. You know, in, in the few years since, I've gone up there and I've been lucky to find one. Yeah, no, I think that does happen, doesn't it? You see, and that's again the thing about watching things locally 
and you know i always say to people get a local patch because then you notice these changes you notice new arrivals you notice things getting commoner and rarer things you took for granted have suddenly disappeared and things you never thought you'd see are suddenly common you know yeah. and it happened so quickly when i was a kid i you know well when i was a kid only i think in the whole of the 20th century there'd only been like two or three species had disappeared and three or four had colonized britain you know and suddenly it's it's for birds you know suddenly it's gone yeah. mad since then you know but and the ups and downs are much greater than they used to be i think the big thing where we are now is ravens they're just dozens of and when i was a kid my mum had to drive me to wales to see a raven from london you know there were not i mean there were a few on dartmoor and exmoor and things scotland and northern england but you know there certainly weren't any in somerset and there weren't any when we moved 14 years ago there were, i saw one or two in the first couple of years and now every day i see half a dozen you know they were tumbling over the garden today yeah we've got a pair um, i work in north well, i work in north essex it's they're the only the first pair in like a hundred and something years yeah, that's right um, yeah. essex and kent yeah. we've had none yeah, yeah they're on white cliffs of dover now yeah they're, they're, there's a pair in north kent nesting on the pylons and they quite often cross the thames to rain and marshes and then head back again yeah yeah um, great but, oh, the noise they make is, is sometimes you're like mm, is that a raven and if you doubt it it's not a raven that's what i've worked out now and I then wonder, you hear it and it's like oh wow just a lovely yeah, noise and it turned out to be a pig <laughs> <laughs> and then it, i was at a, some kind of farm and it grunted like, oh, right. oh fantastic uh wood pigeon i think it was started was it oh, i was it wood pigeon colored up model up started singing today and my daughter my friend or nearly four-year-old daughter said oh it's an owl daddy i was like no it's actually a pigeon but yeah, yeah it sounds like an owl yep. <laughs> so she's well, getting there one today. I, something i hadn't heard in my garden i see them a lot but again because i haven't been sitting out there and heard it for ages was stock doves calling oh lovely a really odd Cool. It's really distinctive. It's this. It's their sort of advertising call. They display over the garden. They're probably the. They're probably the most overlooked British birds. They're absolutely everywhere. No one ever notices. Yeah. I I don't like stock doves because really? I've still never I've still never made a picture of them. They're evil. <laughs> they always say uh, I do like them. I love them. They're fantastic. They've got the same eyes as the penguin in Wallace and Gromit. Next time you look at one, you'll know yes, what I mean. Absolutely uh, right. They have. Yes. Yeah, evil. I, I remember just looking at one and just going, oh my God, it's the penguin. <laughs> but yeah, they, because they, they constantly move on the ground, they're quite often in a shady bit under a tree or something like that. And they're just that bit more skittish than wood pigeons and obviously feral pigeons. I've never quite managed. And I've got some okay shots, but not that really nice shot of one. And yeah. just to rub salt in the wound, I used to, they were in my local park growing up. Obviously, I didn't notice them growing up because I couldn't tell them apart. But when I first started photography, and it's always in the wooded bit they're in, and there's always dogs going through. So they were reasonably tame there, but you just couldn't get a shot because they're not stopped. But now there's at least a pair that sit out on the lawn outside my office at work, taunting me. But if yes. I even stand up in my office, <laughs> they fly off. And I've managed to slightly open the door and... Uh, I just never managed a shot of them, so yeah, I, I sort of love them and hate them at the same time. I mean, we think wood pigeons would be shyer, but the amount they get shot by farmers in a rural area, but <laughs> no, the stock doves are shyer. But there is a lot of sparrowhawks around. That might be part of the reason. I actually say it's something that I don't think I've I've knowingly ever seen. And when we get wood pigeons in the garden and they sit on the roof, um, so our, our garden backs onto the garages from someone else's house and they sit on the roof almost every morning at the moment mm -hmm. either calling or doing what birds do at this time of year um to as fat wood pigeons by me because they're always fat on one side you know, they're absolutely huge you look at them and i swear you look at you think how can you even fly you I are that bit you are waddling down my garden yeah, how smaller, can you fly? they're much neater they're really and they've got very distinctive 
yeah quite a stiff wing flight so much so that i was driving before the lockdown about three or four weeks ago driving down and there was a, a two birds above me and at first i thought it was a bird having a go at a sparrowhawk or something and i realized it's the, both the same species and i thought oh my god they're peregrines they look quite stiff wings and i got out of the car and looked up and they were two stop ducks flying mm-hmm. in sort of formation around each other but they just that gray look and the sort of wing mm-hmm. shape just for a moment you know it's real but they yeah. do look yeah, on the ground like feral pigeons don't they if, you don't, if you're not looking carefully and then you realize they look completely different but the same it's really weird yeah, yeah. this neck pattern sheen on the neck and the yellow bill and then flight they've got black trailing edge yeah. to the wing yeah I, mean, I was told a story about wood pigeons someone told me a story it's a story told by someone else someone else so judge yourself if it's true but i can believe it someone said they saw a fox in their garden watching a wood pigeon under a bird feeder and the fox just sat there watching and watching let the wood pigeon fill up its crop to get heavier and heavier and then charged out to grab it. I think the wood pigeon still got away, but they reckon um, the fox was wait till it was at maximum weight. Yeah, yeah. Because so it, it takes a lot of effort for a wood pigeon to take off. You see the slow motion of them with the, the downward drive of the wing. And yeah, there's a whole podcast on flight and why pterosaurs get bigger because they could use their wing muscles to take off, but to cover another time, I think. Quite fascinating stuff for that. I fear I have encouraged waffling somewhat because we've gone well over the hour mark of pre-editing. I guess we better start wrapping up there. We usually go on for another 10 minutes when I say let's wrap up. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, not well, at all. It's been really nice to talk to you. Yeah, guys. as I say, it's a yeah, thing it's, it's coming on. It's been lovely having you on. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, we'll meet once once it's all over. Yeah, let me know and we'll we'll meet yeah. down. I'd love to get your expertise on insects. Also been looking at your wonderful photography. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Which is not bad, is she? <laughs> really crap photographs but i know what makes a good one it's one thing i think i'm probably missing the most now i've not done any proper photography since october yeah and i've probably got at least two to three months if i'm lucky before i can even think about picking my camera up again so um minimum um, on the upside at least some of that time is now going to be when you couldn't have got out anyway so yeah i mean I, i the thing is i've already had what, October, you already had November, enough. December, had January, feel, yeah. February. I'd already had four months head start on everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so. You did squeeze in some Lama guy photography in the middle of that, though, so I'm not going to have too much sympathy. <laughs> I, I did. I did. And I had an absolutely wonderful group with me that helped me kind of get my bags into the hides and that set my cameras great, up and stuff. That's a great bird. Um, so, I'm not a bird yeah. person, but a Lama guy would do it for me. They are cracking like a hoopoo and a hoopoo. but who you're so wrong if you don't like a hoopoo though so uh, yeah. to me i mean when, when you see them that close i mean lamaga is probably my favorite bird in the world uh, i'm not gonna lie they're, they're right up there probably one of my favorite birds in the world there you go this is a question for Stephen. favorite bird uh well it's good because it used to be swift and for many years it was swift because i choice. lived in london and i loved them because they were the sign of spring and then i moved to somerset and i've written about this in my next book which is on the swallow and i'm afraid the swallow has now taken over and having just written finished my book on it delivered it last week which comes out in the autumn i just swallows are just fantastic i mean amazing incredible birds so are swift still but i think swallow oh. edges it and okay, i for... south africa in january to see somewhere between one and three million swallows at a roost wow I didn't spot my neighbour, but you know. Is it the South African ones, like the British ones? Yeah, yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah uh, well, all over Europe, and yeah, you can't tell, obviously, but yeah, stunning things, and and the fact that they they weigh half as much as a standard packet of crisps, and they still get back here, and they come back to the place they were born. And that's quite impressive. And they're back now. They got back on Saturday. Oh, like. I've I've not seen any yet. I kind of 
I do wonder what's going to happen. We had a house two doors down and she actually had, so the garage was kind of built into the house, but she always kept the back of it open. And for many years she had swallows nesting in there and then she sold and and moved. Uh, But before she moved, one of the conditions was basically that they cleared out the swallow nests and blocked off the garage so they couldn't get in anymore, which is such a shame. And I don't know what happened to them. I've not seen them back. You know, we would use, we would see them coming and going every day and now you know we've just not seen them you just don't get swallows near me or or house martins we do get the swifts thank god but um yeah the the horundines have basically disappeared and that's another gutting thing of where where i work up in north essex obviously the wildlife's a bit richer in many ways it's actually poorer in some of the ways but um bird life it's better and work's got swallows house martins and even bloody i know you're in the southwest it's not quite so special but in south east england spotted flycatchers nesting no it's very special bird for us we don't get yeah. I don't see any of them. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously, some places like Wales and Devon. And, oh, yes, more Devon's got that sort of thing. Isn't That's it? right. Yeah. They're, 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 yeah. Well, they're just declining everywhere. You know. Mm. But they've, they've basically just evaporated from Essex almost entirely now. And they also, they've also one of the few reliable sites for turtle doves in Essex as well. They have them on their garden feeders outside outside the building next to the reserve it's just insane but and unless we you know i may miss it this year having waited six months working there or longer but you know always next year when i'm still working there well, <laughs> but, i think oh, that's I, the I thing isn't my it? favorite bird actually i should probably yes, do mine you haven't picked yours yeah oh god i nearly got away with it oh god i could pick uh, i could pick one from each group can i do that no no you <laughs> can pick one bird well it's between fulmer hobby which is ironic being that I love dragonflies and and curlew. I've, ooh, I'm going to go with Fulmer because anything that can take out sea eagles. So I was having an argument between Gannets and Fulmers between me and my good friend Dave Fresland. And he's he's team Gannet and I'm team Fulmer. And Gannets, amazing birds. I've seen them diving. I've had one skim my head over on a boat diving for fish. But Fulmers, it was up, one of the Scottish islands where they introduced sea eagles, or they introduced an island next door. None of the sea eagles survive there because they fly too close to the cliff. The, the Fulmers. The very first yeah. ones, 1967. Is it those ones? Yeah, the Fulmers squirted their um, fish juice on their wings. They couldn't yeah. fly and they died. It's oil. Yeah, they actually they cough up oil. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. that's still amazing. And they're mini albatrosses. You just there yeah. you go. <laughs> they can't beat them. And the fact that was it in the 30s or 40s they're restricted to the parts of the west coast was it or that's somewhere right, and yeah. they spread all around the UK but they didn't go well, they only the went one way. Yeah, in the 1870s they were only on yeah. St Kilda and I think Fula. It's so amazing, in hundred years they spread right round and they're everywhere now. Yeah, beautiful birds. James Fisher, who's my great hero sort of Attenborough of his day he he wrote a whole massive book on the full money love them I have found something extraordinary um I'm trying to think what it's called Sutton Bank in Yorkshire it's miles inland miles inland and apparently they nested on there oh, oh yeah that's the sort you know, of the inland nesting formers you know a seabird so nests do that don't they but the only place they've nested facing inland is Amber yeah. Castle, yeah, they nest on the wall facing inland. Apparently, even the Sutton Bank ones facing out to sea. So it's still technically a sea facing cliff. It just happens to be sort of 40, 50 miles inland or whatever the hell it is. It's extraordinary. So there you go. So we, we, we're finishing up and we've gone on for another, I don't know how long. Brilliant. Okay, guys. Well, nice to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for going on, Stephen. Yeah, it's been you. great it's been to have you. Brilliant. Pleasure. And uh, we'll talk soon again, I'm sure. And yes. Awesome. Listening, look after yourself. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you take care. And that goes all you out there as well.
Yeah, so everyone, please do take care of yourselves um, and send us your sightings from your gardens as well, because we'd love to know what you're seeing either in your own gardens when you go out for your, your one piece of exercise a day. Let us know what you're seeing. You know, are you starting to see swallows come back? You know, is it a bird or are you seeing more butterflies starting to come out? What about bees? You know, bumblebees are certainly coming out now. So, you know, drop, drop us a line on either Facebook or Twitter at UK Wildlife Podcast because uh, we'd just love to see what you're hearing seeing and hearing <laughs> and hearing too yes and touching and hopefully not tasting yeah. um okay then right well that's it from us so take uh, care until next time bye bye bye